Hello and a very warm welcome to episode three of the Daytona Beach Sports Guys podcast. It's been a long time. I'm Michael. That's Mel. We're the Daytona Beach Sports Guys. It's been about three months since we've been able to sit down and actually record a show. And that's because both of us have been insanely busy this summer and you've been not here. So uh, give us a little bit of a rundown of what you've been doing and, and why we haven't been able to record well, Michael, first of all, thank you very much for helping put this podcast together. It's great to be back in the state of Florida. I was actually in Washington, D.C., and now I'm back in the great state of Florida. I'll be attending law school here at the University of Miami in about a month or so, and I'm really, really excited to talk to you about so many different exciting things happening in the sports world, whether it's at the collegiate level, whether it's at the professional level, or even the international stage with the Olympics in Tokyo. There's been a lot going on, and really, we could have done about three or four episodes in between now and then. We're going to have to condense it into one. We may run uh, a little bit long today, but that's fine. There's a lot to talk about. Let's get started with something that happened a couple of months ago that I wanted to sit down and talk about immediately, but you had already left, and that's the whole Super League issue with European soccer, something that is very close to both of our hearts. Uh, me, the Premier League, you, more Serie A and, and La Liga. So a bunch of teams, the top revenue-generating teams in, in, in Europe, wanted to break away, form a, a Super League, which kind of followed an American model where you can't get relegated and there's guaranteed money for everybody and, and everything. And the pushback against it from the European fans and fans around the world kind of derailed it, and I don't think the owners of the teams and the people involved in the decision-making were expecting that big of a pushback, because it fell apart relatively quickly in, in, in around three or four days. I think, it's a, I think it speaks to the power of the fans in relation to the entire ecosystem of the sport, and I think, although I'm a Juventus fan, and although I understand why a team like Juventus may be interested in participating in a league of this nature, I think it was a good thing to see, at least for now, to see the, the league not really take shape and form as we know it. Well, in response to that, UEFA released a new Champions League format, which is set to start not this season, but next season, which follows a Swiss model where everybody's in one big group and you play 10 games against randomly selected opponents and then you top cut to the playoffs. That almost seems to me like a mini Super League, especially with the guaranteed places for teams in the top five leagues that fail to qualify through conventional means. Yeah, I mean, that definitely sounds like they're, at least based on what you just said, I mean, it seems like they're really taking a rather radically different approach to the Champions League this year. And I think it's to cater to those teams that threatens to break away and says, here, 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 here's more guaranteed, you know, guaranteed spots yeah. in the Champions League. Here's more guaranteed money. Please I, stay. I mean, based you know? on what you're saying, it seems like the Champions League UEFA, they're trying to appease these bigger clubs in mm-hmm. a certain way and to maybe offer some sort of indirect concession for the bigger the bigger giants not actually withdrawing and forming their own league. Who knows? Yeah. Well, it's all to play for, and I think we'll see how the new format shakes out in a couple of years. I personally like Swiss format, but not for games like soccer. Swiss format is great for card games. It's great for things like poker 
or in tournaments where you have hundreds and hundreds of people and you can't feasibly play everybody else. Mm -hmm. And it's a great system to figure out who the best is in a large group of people. The Champions League cannot feasibly put enough teams into a system like that to make it worthwhile, nor play enough games to accurately get a reading out of it without disrupting the rest of the European and, and world soccer calendar. So I don't have a lot of confidence that the system will succeed, but I'm going to probably watch it anyway and, and to see how it shakes out. Yeah, I mean, it'll definitely be fascinating to kind of see how things pan out this year and kind of evaluate where, kind of evaluate who the top five teams end up being. But kind of coming back to the issue about the Super League in general, one point I wanted to add, I know we'll eventually draw some parallels to a later topic that we'll talk about with regard to Texas, Texas and Oklahoma leaving the Big 12 potentially for the SEC. But one aspect of the Super League that I wasn't in favor of is basically with the creation of the Super League, it wouldn't provide smaller clubs such as Ajax Amsterdam or other clubs of that nature, clubs maybe in the, the Belgian League. They may not get as much exposure through TV money. Mm -hmm. And it's, as I told you before the, we started the show, the whole theme of this podcast is rich get richer. And we'll yes. see that with, uh, with uh, a couple of topics later concerning college football. All right, let's move on to other things that happen around the world of soccer. Argentina wins the Copa America. Messi finally gets his senior international championship. Let's quickly touch on what this means uh, for Messi's career. He never got the World Cup. He didn't win the Centenario a couple of years ago, but he finally gets it. I, I, I think especially across the entire globe, whether it's in South America, North America, Europe, Asia, I think the entire globe was very happy for Messi when he finally secured that international trophy. I certainly was. Yeah, it, it, it kind of cements his legacy as, if not the best player of all time, certainly in the top five. I think Pele and Maradona and... Ronaldo Gaucho, not uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, but Ronaldo Gaucho also are kind of in that vein. But I think Messi is now right up there with them. Oh, yeah. I mean, without a doubt, even even before clinching that international trophy, I, I've always felt as though Messi should always be in the discussion, at least in the top five, top three even. And it's, I mean, just to touch on this, <clears throat> excuse me, just to touch on this very briefly, I just, I think we're we're both so lucky to have witness both Ronaldo and Messi play in our generation, I do feel as though they kind of pushed each other to the levels of greatness that we see today. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're going to see two players completely dominate the sport of soccer like that again in our lifetimes. And it's been great to watch over the past, you know, 10, 15 years. All right, moving on to basketball, NBA finals, the Phoenix Suns, the Milwaukee Bucks. A lot of people said they weren't going to tune in for these finals, but it was one of the most watched finals of the last decade. Milwaukee and Giannis Antetokounmpo finally gets his ring. He won three MVPs and now finally an NBA championship. And in the same vein as kind of Messi, although Antetokounmpo's career is not as far along as Messi's is, but if he goes on to win a couple of more titles, will we be talking about Antetokounmpo in the same vein as we talk about, you know, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Larry Bird, and those kind of people. Well, I think from my understanding, I think what you're seeing is LeBron James essentially passing the torch to, how do you say his last name? Atetokounmpo. Yes. And I, I think you're seeing the, the passing of the torch here. And I think it's been Giannis's league already for at least the past year or so. But I think you're really starting to see the changing of the guard here in the NBA. 
And on the other side, heartbreak for Chris Paul. He finally gets to the NBA Finals again, and he can't win it. So he's now 39. He's got one more year on his contract with the Phoenix Suns, a team that, to be perfectly honest, was lucky to make it to the Finals. They beat a banged-up Lakers team. They beat a banged-up L.A. Clippers team on the way there. So I don't think there's much chance for Phoenix to get back to the championship series. So is this the end for Chris Paul? It's definitely do or die at this point. I mean, it, as you mentioned, his his contract is almost up. I mean, I can't really speak too much on the NBA. I didn't really watch the NBA playoffs too much. But, I mean, I think we all were kind of cheering a little bit for Chris Paul to try and clinch that as well. But, I mean, all the credit to the Milwaukee Bucks on this one as well. Yeah, and I'm a Phoenix, I'm a Phoenix Suns fan, kind of as a secondary. That's sort of my secondary team in the NBA. So I was, I was happy to see them get there, mm-hmm. but sad to see them lose. All right. On to bigger and better topics. It's time to talk European Championship. Italy, on penalties, wins their first senior international tournament since 2006. We both watched this game. We both watched most of the tournament. It was the biggest event of the summer uh, in our eyes, and... It did not disappoint. It was a fun, fun couple of weeks. It certainly did not disappoint. I thought it was a great tournament from start to finish, and it was actually really interesting to see so many games go to penalty kicks, especially that that final matchup between England and Italy. I think something we got to talk about before we move on to the results themselves is the load management of a lot of international soccer players, especially those who play with the national teams who have now played basically a year and a half, almost a year and three quarters straight without a significant break because of what happened with COVID last year and how condensed the schedule was at the start of this last season. So, and now we're moving into preseason for the next European league. I mean, Everton was in Orlando. They played a game yesterday uh, in preseason with a bunch of people that were in the European championships in that squad. So, how do coaches and especially players manage all of these minutes, if, especially if you're a team maybe in the lower reaches of the Premier League who doesn't have the squad depth of, say, a Manchester United or a Chelsea? It's a very slippery slope, especially I feel, I feel as though this is definitely an atypical year, though, just because, for example, we're playing the, the Tokyo 2020 Olympics here in 2021. One player that's actually that I think we should focus on just for a moment here is... Pedri, the attacking midfielder from Barcelona, he's actually he's made some appearances here in the Olympics. He played in the European Championships, and he he start he played a lot of games, I believe, with Barcelona as well. And so I think he's the typical player that we should focus on with regard to load management. I think he's an example of a player who's played lots of minutes, and he's somehow been able to it seems like avoid injury, but it definitely speaks to the larger issue and increased risk of injury with a lot of these minutes being played, especially by the younger players. Yeah, so I have a, a stat here for Pedri. At the start of the Olympics, he had played 63 games in 289 game days. That's a game on average every four days. I mean, it's an, it's an absurd stat, and I definitely don't think the players should be playing that much, but... I mean, sometimes duty calls. And we're going to see it more now with the expanded Champions League. There's going to be 10 games in the uh, group stage instead of six. So there's just where are you going to find those games? 
it's going to be tricky to see how it all pans out. I mean, we'll see how it develops over the next year or so and, and see how specific players deal with various injuries that may or may not result. Mm-hmm. And I think that increasing the calendar will ultimately shorten the careers of promising players like a, a Pedri who had too many miles on their body too early. So let's go back to the European Championship and let's talk about England. For the second time in a major tournament, they really showed up. World Cup 2018 got to the semifinals. Here it got to the finals. We've got a World Cup coming up next year. Do they, can they win it all? I think England's certainly in the discussion moving forward for the bigger national or international tournaments such as the World Cup. Although England didn't win the European Championship this time around, I really do think they showed a lot of promise. And, I mean, especially with regard to their lineup, you see a lot of players really starting to enter the prime of their careers, such as Harry Kane. I know Harry Kane isn't the most popular player on the English national team, but I do think that they have a lot of young talent that I think will help them down the stretch. And a lot of young players on the, on the England squad that, that didn't really get many minutes. I'm thinking of people like jo- uh, Jaden Sancho. I'm thinking of people like Calvin Phillips and Declan Rice that are in their early 20s and playing at the high level in the Premier League or Bundesliga. And Jaden Sancho just secured a move to Manchester United. So he'll be back in the Premier League. I think that the future is bright, bright for this England squad, even though there are a couple of people you know, John Stones, Kyle Walker, maybe even a Harry Kane that will age out of the team before next summer. I don't know how Harry Kane's going to hold up through this Premier League season. We're going to have to see. From my understanding, he's being linked to Manchester City now. Is that correct? I think everybody, if you're a top player at some point in your career, gets linked to Manchester City. I don't <laughs> think he's going to leave Tottenham. I, th- I think um, he is very comfortable there, and he... He doesn't really have an incentive to move outside of, hey, I want to win a Premier League title because Tottenham is certainly not going to challenge for a Premier League title this season. One of the more recent rumors I heard about since we're talking about it is uh, Erling Holland to Chelsea for 150 million euros. But he kind of, Erling Holland actually, he kind of, he tried to downplay it by saying, I hope that I'm not worth that much, kind of trying to spook them a little bit yeah well I mean if Holland does go to Chelsea I think it vaults Chelsea to title contenders immediately oh yeah I I couldn't agree with you more on that one all right let's move on something more recent that's happening right now general Olympics discussion just for a few minutes before we get on to the meat and potatoes of this episode have you watched any of the Olympics so far if so what have you enjoyed I haven't watched too much of it just because I, there's been a lot going on, but I have, I have watched bits and pieces. Last night, I was watching the rerun of table tennis. That was really interesting. Uh, I saw a lot of the highlights of the swimming. I know there was a, a 17-year-old American, I believe. I don't remember her name off the top of my head, but she won a gold medal, which was a really cool thing to see. And I followed the gymnastics team event and how that all developed over time. Yeah, the 17-year-old is, is Lydia Jacoby and becomes the first U.S. swimmer from the state of Alaska to win a gold medal and also to compete at the Olympics at just age 17. And then, of course, last night, Katie Ledecky won the inaugural women's 1,500 meters, as she was predicted to do, but the U.S. took a 1-2 in that event. I've been following as much of the Olympics as I possibly can because it is my favorite sporting event ever, 
And every time it comes around, I just try to, to soak it all in. And even under the unfortunate circumstances that these Olympics are being played under, it's easy to just sort of sit back and relax and take in, you know, the best athletes in the world going at it. I was watching, you know, rowing yesterday evening, and even that was engaging and engrossing. And you said you watched some table tennis. And it, oh, yeah. I can't wait for athletics to start next week and track and field. It's going to be – I mean, I've always really enjoyed watching the swimming. I've really enjoyed especially watching the track and field, the 100-meter race. I feel like that's one of the most exciting things I feel like we can see in sports today. First – 100 meters since 2004 without Usain Bolt in it. So we will see who is primed to take the 100-meter crown. And I wanted to ask you, from the little bit that you've seen, has not having a crowd in the arena affected your viewing experience at all? That's a tricky one. I mean, being a TV viewer... I feel like if you're a true sports fan, you should enjoy the sport for what it is and the, the the intricacies that happen within the sport itself. However, I do feel like the crowd can add something to the events themselves, especially when you're watching a very um, short sport in duration. For example, we talked about the 100-meter dash. I've always felt like the crowd being engaging with that is something very exciting to watch on TV, and it's something I aspire to watch in person at some point later in life. Well, LA 2028, book your tickets uh, now. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll definitely look into that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think with the swimming last night as well, I think the lack of crowd kind of played into it. it it's interesting you hear the beep you hear the splash but there's nothing else and Plus, then mm-hmm. you can hear you can hear the the coaches on the side of the pool like shouting instructions and you can hear in other events you can hear the players a lot better like I've been watching a lot I've watched sorry it's over now a lot of the Olympic softball tournament and you can you know kind of hear the chatter between the players on the field it brings a different dynamic to the TV viewing experience, but I don't think it lessens it too much. Did you end up watching the surfing event? No. S- surfing and skateboarding, I watched a little bit of the skateboarding, and it, something about it just seemed so inauthentic to me that I, I, I just couldn't bring myself to watch any more of it. Fair enough. There's definitely all kinds of different sports in the Olympics this year, it seems like. Mm-hmm. I am interested to watch uh, sport climbing, which is the other new sport that that has been added. And that looks really interesting. How about you kind of go into the details of that? I have absolutely no idea what that uh, consists of. Basically, it's speed rock climbing. Okay. So almost something like something out of American Ninja Warrior. Kind of, yeah. It, it, it kind of feels like that. But the just to watch these people climb these walls so fast. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, a test it, of true athleticism it, there. That's for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be really excited to watch to watch that. All right. Now to the meat and potatoes of today's episode. We're going to be talking a lot of college sports. We're going to start in chronological order because name, image, and likeness happened. N-I-L and my dyslexic eyes keep reading that as NLI, National Letter of Intent, which is something completely different. But name, image, and likeness laws passed a couple of weeks ago, and immediately we saw athletes jump on this. So you, the lawyer in training, 
kind of jump into to what this means for the sport of college football and college athletics in general. Well, this is actually a really groundbreaking ruling. So the, the ruling that we're referring to is NCAA versus Alston. And so basically, with that ruling, it was actually a unanimous ruling 9-0. The Supreme Court affirmed the lower court's injunction of NCAA rules that restrict education-related benefits to Division I basketball and bowl subdivision football student-athletes. So essentially what that means is athletes are now allowed to make money off of their name, image, and likeness through the capacity of endorsement deals or deals of the like. And what you're seeing now is it's really changing the landscape. For example, University of Alabama's quarterback is making upwards of almost seven figures as a sophomore, and I don't even know if he's seen the field yet, but I think that that speaks to what's going on on a macro level, especially for the bigger teams such as the Alabamas, the mm-hmm. University of Florida's, the, the University of Texas's. Um, and I think it'll, we'll see kind of what happens with it. I think it's a very exciting time to be studying sports law in such a dynamic and fast-paced, evolving era of sports. It seemed that after the law was passed a couple of weeks ago, there was a mad scramble by athletes, by businesses, you know, by Barstool Sports signed a bunch of people. You yeah, know, I mean, it, it just, everything happens so fast. And I think that it's important not only that these athletes get compensated, which I think is a, is a, is a win, but I think athletes should be educated on how to use this money, on how to, you know, be their own businessman, which essentially they now all are. And I, th- I know some schools are doing that. I heard an interview with the athletic director at Western Kentucky University saying, you know, now there's a, a class required for all athletes about money management and how NIL laws work, and that's great. But something like that should be universal. Oh, 100%. And what you're seeing, because of the truly fast nature, fat, because of the truly fast-paced nature of what's going on, you're seeing the schools take it upon themselves to really try and educate the students. I think of it as somewhat of a Wild West kind of situation where there's a lot of uncharted territory here. There's a lot of ongoing developments. And it's really up to the athletes along with, in my opinion, I think the schools should really continue to try and take it upon themselves to to help these athletes and provide them with the right education to make informed choices and decisions about the kinds of deals they sign. For example, one thing I wanted to talk about just very briefly. So a few weeks ago, I was reading an article actually and what it talked about is how a lot of since, since as of I believe it was July 1st, that's when athletes are now able to profit off of the NIL laws. Essentially what happened is Barstool Sports, their platform signed a lot of athletes and there were potential legal issues that rose because of their potential ineligibility as a result of Barstool being linked to their gambling platform. Mm-hmm. So... The Florida NIL law, and we're in, we're in Florida, so this is relevant, allows intercollegiate athletes to earn compensation for the use of their name, image, and likeness, but prohibits post-secondary institutions from preventing athletes from earning money or goods. That's important because the schools now cannot step in and stop it, but also the schools themselves cannot compensate athletes for yes. their name, image, and likeness. It has to be an independent business, but... There are things that are illegal. You can't advertise, you know, gambling, drugs and alcohol, 
couple of other things like that that, that are in the NCAA laws. Now, what's interesting is that the NCAA kind of threw the ball down the road with this ruling saying, oh, now it's up to the states. It's up to your state's individual name and likeness rule. And and if your state doesn't have one, it's up to your school. We're not going to make a decision. It's a very unregulated industry right now, quite frankly. And I'm not exactly sure what the solution is with regard to with regard to approaching a problem of this nature. However, maybe some federal action may be needed to help standardize and regulate and properly inform um, conferences, schools, athletes at the grassroots level about how to kind of professionally and within their legal means exercise these um, NIL rights that they have now. I agree, and I think some national legislation is needed. Um, But back to the NCAA... They were against this for so long, kind of holding up the moral ambiguity of amateurism in college sports, when we all know that it's been dead for a long time. Well, from the- my perspective, it, it's very fascinating because with this, I actually, I pulled it up, I included it in the link in our notes. I actually included the Supreme Court of the United States ruling, and if you just really briefly take a look... It talks about how the profitable enterprise relies on amateur student-athletes who compete under horizontal restraints that restrict how the schools may compensate them for their play. Um, And then it continues by saying, um, yeah, the beginning sentence, it says, Colleges and universities across the country have leveraged sports to bring in revenue, attract attention, boost enrollment, and raise money for alumni. I think that first sentence is really important because it really kind of contextualizes, I think it'll explain further in the opinion why they believe what they do, but I think that the court ruled with the athletes because of all that money that the colleges and universities, and especially the likes of the NCAA, they've been able to profit off of these athletes for so long now. Mm -hmm. A lot of money has essentially been left on the table, and um, I didn't mean to cut you off there. My point was, the NCAA could have gone out in front of this. They could have planned, hey, this is the national rules for name, image, and likeness. These are our rules. You have to follow them. They could have been as restrictive as possible to keep the NCAA's hands clean, metaphorically. But they allowed it to get to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled against them, and then they hastily had to slap together some temporary rulings because it was going to happen anyway. I mean, when all this developed, I really thought that the player side of the lawsuit would eventually come out on top. I think it was not the best judgment for the NCAA to not really foresee or at least have some sort of tentative plans in place to try and help regulate the framework of college athletics if necessary. And that's the scenario that ended up playing out. I just I thought that maybe there would be a majority opinion. And, and um, I, I, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Where do you think the future is? for college athletics in regards to NIL. We'll get to conference realignment in a minute. But in regards to NIL, where do you think in the next five to ten years we see the landscape shifting in college athletics? Well, I think we we spoke about one of the larger themes of this podcast with the rich getting richer concept. I think what you're going to start to see is you're going you're, you're to start to see more and more inequality 
in college football. And I think that maybe for the lower, the smaller schools, the smaller universities that may not get as much exposure, I would consider those to be the losers in this kind of arrangement. However, I do think it is good for the big name brand schools in terms of maximizing their exposure, their brand identity. And I think it makes a hot recruiting pitch to certain recruits. If University of Texas or UF says, we can help you scale your social media following and we can help you profit because of the kind of exposure that we can offer you through the resources and just general exposure of the university. So I, there's multiple caveats and facets to this, mm-hmm. but um, that's kind of my take on that. Yeah, and it in the article that I was reading from about the NIL laws, it says the universities cannot compensate players directly. It did not say anything about alumni. It did not say anything about boosters and, um, and um, businesses that boosters own. I think that is a slippery slope. Yeah, and we'll, we'll see how fall. it develops. And that's another thing that I think the NCAA missed out on by not being out in front of this to prevent those kind of things. Yeah, and I mean, it'll be really interesting to see how things develop over the next four or five years. And I mean, someone like myself, I'm going to be following this issue very closely to see how things turn out and to see how this rather unregulated NCAA world that we're living in pans out. All right, now to the big topic. Um, on last Wednesday, that was July 22nd, a source from Brent Zwinnerman of the Houston Chronicle reported that Texas at Austin and the University of Oklahoma could reach out and join the SEC, and it's happened, basically. All that's left to do is vote. A quick timeline of events, um... This happened during SEC media days. The leak was reported during the Texas A&M press conference, and I don't think that that is a coincidence at all. So Texas A&M, in opposition, they moved to the SEC to get away from Texas in the first place, basically. The SEC presidents met the back end of last week. The Big 12 presidents met without Texas and Oklahoma last week. Over the weekend, there wasn't much movement, but then on Monday, confirmation that Texas and Oklahoma are leaving the Big 12. They have released a statement saying that, let me find it. Yes, they released a statement that said, that said they will not be renewing the grants of media rights following their expiration in 2025 and they provide notice to the Big 12 at this point. They have not formally reached out to join the SEC, nor has the SEC voted to accept them in, but I think those are formalities at this point, and it will be done within the next week to couple of weeks. This is a huge topic. It's up there with the whole Super League argument that we talked about earlier. This would give the SEC 16 teams, and it would give the SEC something about six of the top 12 brands by wealth in college football. Oh boy, there's a lot to talk about here. There's definitely, there's certainly a lot to break down. You did a great job of highlighting the aspect that University of Texas and Oklahoma University, what they decided to do is they decided not to renew their media rights agreement and they're essentially slated to 
begin with the SEC conference, assuming the voting goes through. I can talk about that in just a second in 2025. Um, the most recent development, Texas and OU released a statement saying that they plan to honor their existing media rights agreement with the Big 12 until it expires in the next couple of years. I don't believe that, though. I, I really don't. I think the pressure of their fan bases to get to the SEC, the pressure of the money that comes from being in the SEC will be too much. I think eventually they will be forced to buy out of that contract for a couple of hundred million dollars. Be- yeah, it'll, they'll, they'll, that's also the other option. They could choose to opt out of their media rights agreement and pay whatever that sum would be. I, it's I don't have $20 that. million dollars per, per, other, per other school in the Big 12. That would be eight more schools, so it's... Okay, yeah, 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 that makes sense. Yeah, so it's $20 million to each school in, that's left in the Big 12 per Texas and Oklahoma. I'm not good at math, so I can't do that in my head. And so with the, the next development that is set to take place is the actual voting process, and essentially what that consists of, so the presidents of each university within the SEC conference, whether it's Vanderbilt... Uh, University of Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, et cetera, they will all vote on whether to eventually admit Texas and Oklahoma. And I think we're in consensus here. It seems like the deal is going to go through. Even Texas A&M is eventually, they, they've come around to the idea of Texas mm-hmm. and Oklahoma joining by saying that we're ready. The athletic director of Texas A&M explained in a statement that we're, whether Texas joins or not, we're going to be ready for them in the SEC. And this is something new that just appeared uh, yesterday uh, evening, I didn't even notice it until this morning when I looked at it, official request from Oklahoma and the University of Texas at Austin to join the SEC effective July 1st, 2025. And if personal opinion, it's going to be way sooner than that. I think we could see them playing in the SEC as soon as next season, a oh, year wow. from now. I think the pressure will be too great on those schools to leave the Big 12. The other thing this does for college football it basically means the Big 12 is irrelevant. Yeah, the big, what you're going to see here is the Big 12 will probably dissolve, and you're going to see the formation of the SEC Super Conference, whether they decide to keep the SEC name that still is, has yet to be determined. Basically, what you'll see is you'll see some schools such as Baylor, Texas Tech, schools of that nature, TCU, reach out to conferences such as the Pac-12, which may provide some issues, mm-hmm. or even schools like the West Virginia joining the, the ACC conference. The Pac-12 has already released this. I don't think they've released an official statement, but their general sense is we want to admit these schools, but they have very high academic standards mm-hmm. for certain schools. So we'll see how the ongoing negotiations pan out. But it seems like a lot of schools are and the Big 12 are starting to think more seriously mm-hmm. about a post-Big 12 world. Yeah. Like, So the Pac-12 and the Big Ten have reported that they are only interested in universities that are members of the Association of American Universities, which means they are land-grant research universities with high academic standards. Okay. Which a lot of schools in the Big 12 don't meet. All the Texas schools don't meet it. Oklahoma doesn't meet it. Um, West Virginia doesn't meet it. So... It's going to be difficult for schools left in the Big 12 to find homes in either the, the uh, Big 10 or the Pac-12. Yeah, it's, going to be, it's certainly going to be a difficult situation for some teams in the Big 12. And 
there there are certain positive outcomes, there are certain negative outcomes of a move like this. I mean, I really do think that the winners in this kind of deal are Texas, Oklahoma, the SEC, and the schools within the SEC, and the losers in this situation are, unfortunately, schools in the Big 12 who are going to now be forced to find a new home. Now, let's look at this from a personal standpoint. We can come back to the 1,000-foot view in a minute. We're from SEC country. We're both University of Florida fans. Grew up loving Gators football. You went to the University of Florida for a short time. As Florida fans, how do we feel about this? I say, bring it on. Yeah, I think it's... I. If I'm the president of University of Florida, I'm voting yes no matter what. I think it's a great deal for any team, whether it's Florida or South Carolina or whoever. I think the the magnitude of the TV money that a school like University of Texas can bring to the Southeastern Conference and just the awareness and the viewership that University of Texas can bring in particular to SEC games, I think it's – and also – one thing that I think SEC schools will like about a school like University of Texas is the academic reputation of the university. And it, because University of Texas is the flagship University of Texas, I think it's a, a well-rounded, solid addition to the league. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the main reasons that Texas A&M was originally against it. They wanted to be the only SEC school in Texas. They wanted to own recruiting in that state. They don't anymore now. Now people, recruits will look at Texas and say, I can go there and still play in the SEC. You can, yeah, and I mean, it's it's so difficult for me to render a lot of opinions about this issue because I do have, although I'm a University of Florida fan, I am a University of Texas fan as well because that's where I eventually got my my bachelor degree. It's from a University of Texas fan's perspective, I like the move, but from a, a larger, more objective, macro level understanding of this for college football, I just I I worry about it possibly compromising the integrity of like what we love about college football today. Well, I think what college football originally was is long gone. Um, regionalism is, is not a thing anymore. I've been to Oklahoma. That place is neither south nor east. So, <laughs> But I think um, to speak a little bit more on the issue while we're talking about it, we before we actually started – the recording the podcast, Michael, we talked about the potential 12-team playoff expansion that the NCAA and the, the playoff committee is looking at. I think that with the likes of Texas and Oklahoma joining the SEC, I think probably what Texas representatives were thinking of when pondering this move is this move is actually going to set us up really well for a, for a potential 12-team scenario here. Yeah, because of those 12 teams, the SEC is likely to have five or six every year. And taking a few losses from a, a few SEC teams, it maybe not will be viewed with as much scrutiny as maybe a loss from mm-hmm. a non-SEC opponent. You yeah. Know? The other thing I wanted to bring up is, is the SEC done? Are they going to go after a program like Clemson? Are they going to go after a Florida State or even an Ohio State or Michigan and try and just say, you know, enough with the NCAA, we are college football now? Because I think that is a way this could go as well. Possibly. I mean, I don't know if that move is as likely to happen in the near future, maybe in the next 10, 20 years. I certainly think anything is fair game. However, I think the big, I think a conference like the Big Ten is actually sitting in a really good spot right now. Uh, one thing I wanted to briefly talk about 
are the TV numbers and the revenue brought in for each respective conference. And I think that kind of speaks to maybe why Texas and Oklahoma are leaving the Big 12. If you look here, it says the Big 12 earned $409.2 million as opposed to the Big 10's $768.9 million in revenue. And we can talk a little bit more about maybe why the Big 12 media deal isn't as lucrative. But unfortunately, I mean, I, just being open about it, I think the creation of the Longhorn Network significantly damaged the Big 12 because the Big 12 didn't have a specific uh, TV network, mm -hmm. such as the ACC network, SEC network. Um, that's kind of my um, external, like, objective interpretation of it, if you will. Yeah, and I think the other reason the Big 12 revenue was lower than the other conferences, because across the board, and I'm talking about football now, not other sports. I know Oklahoma is dominant in a lot of things. I know Oklahoma State and, and TCU and all those other schools are, are good in other sports, but this is football. Texas and Oklahoma, maybe not on record, but on reputation, have held up that conference since its beginning about 12 years ago. So now that you lose those two schools, there was a big statement from the, the presidents of the other eight schools saying we're going to stick together and we're going to ride this out. We're going to come through stronger and still compete. No, you're not. It's not possible, unfortunately. I'm it would be nice to preserve the Big 12, but I really do think that Texas and Oklahoma historically have been the two heavyweights that have carried the conference, whether it's from a TV rights perspective or whether it's from um, a follow, like a viewership mm -hmm. standpoint. Yeah, because when that TV deal with Fox and ESPN runs out in 2025 and those eight schools go to ESPN and go to Fox or, or go to NBC and say, yeah, we want a TV rights deal, they're going to say, sure, you can have what's left over after we give all our money to the SEC and Big Ten. Exactly. And as we mentioned before, I really do think what's going to happen is it's going to cause a domino effect throughout college football, and it's going to create some waves. And it'll be, it'll be interesting and a little bit nerve-wracking to see what ends up happening from a conference perspective. I think what's probably going to end up happening is the Big 12 will dissolve, and they the teams in it, We'll try and scramble to get in in other conferences, well, either the ACC, the Big Ten, or the Pac-12. Maybe what we'll see is eventually, this is long-term speculation, who knows what will happen. Maybe we'll see the three super conferences where the ACC and the SEC will merge, and then maybe the Midwest will have some sort of Big Ten and then a Pac-12 kind of thing. Who knows? Maybe. There have been unconfirmed reports that the Big Ten has reached out to some of the Pac-12 schools. And I don't think there's much truth to that. It's, it's, it's the same thing as the SEC with Clemson and Florida State. Uh -huh. I, I don't think there's much truth to that, although maybe I'm wrong. But I think we're just going to see, at some point, we may see college football really turn into a mini NFL. You're going to have your Eastern Conference. You're going to have your Western Conference. Yeah. I, think, I think that's probably where we're headed. What I fear for is the teams geographically closest to where we are now. Your UCFs, your, you know, university, to a lesser extent, the University of Miami. But, you know, what happens to the teams in the American and the Sun Belt and uh, the Mountain West? 
Yeah, I mean, the little guy is unfortunately, I think, one of the losers in this kind of scenario. And, I mean, I'm not sure what the solution is to a, an ongoing situation like this. But, I mean, as a, a true sports fan of college sports and college football in particular, it'll, I hope that there will be mechanisms in place to help schools like that continue to try and get more brand, more school brand exposure to play games against schools like University of Florida because a lot of money is exchanged when a school like University of Florida will play a smaller school like Troy. And these these games are big deals for the smaller schools. And mm -hmm. I hope that despite the creation of, the I guess, the SEC Super League, I hope that they will still find times for games of that nature. I know University of Florida and University of Central Florida recently announced a, I think it was a three-game three series. Three-game series over the next 13 years. I was about to bring that up. And I think those kind of games still need to happen. Yes, of course. And, I mean... I think what you'll see is I think those games will still happen. They just won't happen as frequently mm -hmm. as, we, as we've been used to seeing them historically over the last 10, 15 years. Well, think about it from an immediate perspective. Let's say Texas and Oklahoma bite the bullet, and they're in the SEC next season, and there's 16 teams. If you play eight conference games a season, you could go half a decade or more without seeing a team from the other conference, East and West. Yeah, and one actually one article I read it, it talked about the the pod system having four different pods, and I think if the if Oklahoma and Texas join, they may actually just completely restructure how the league operates in terms of who makes it to the SEC championship eventually. Mm -hmm. I think the pod system is the best way to go about it, where you play the other three teams in your pod every year, and then a rotating group of the teams from the other pods, meaning you see. Every other team, at least once, be that home or away every four years. There's a small part of me that's really excited at the thought of a UT UF matchup. Uh, yeah. I've always been, I've waited for that matchup my entire life, and I feel like it might actually happen now. The, the first, the first time UT comes to the swamp, I think we both want. Tickets. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's probably one of the only scenarios in which I would actually cheer against the University of Florida. I mean, I've <laughs> cheered for them my entire life, but it's kind of hard to cheer against my alma mater in any yeah. case, UT Austin. But I'm excited to, to see how these games will pan out and if UF and UT will play each other by 2030. We'll see. Mm -hmm. I just think it's, it's disappointing for people who love the sport of college football and for people who want to see integrity and fair play continue. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very slippery slope, and sometimes the money talks and deals like this, and hopefully there will be mechanisms in place to try and guarantee that fair play that you you speak of. But unfortunately, I feel like sometimes it's about the money. It seems like it seems like money is a primary driver of this kind of deal, right? Money makes the world go round, and the big teams have it, and through NIL and through um this now conference reshuffling that's about to happen, we, we're probably about to see more of the sort of rich-get-richer mindset that we've said throughout this show. What do you think is the timeline for Texas and Oklahoma actually joining the SEC and, to a wider extent, the teams in the Big 12 either shattering or, or finding some other way? What do you, how, how soon do you think get, this gets done? I think you're going to see a lot of movement in the next year. I don't know if they'll join as early as 2022, but I could see them joining in a year such as 2023, maybe a year or two after. And that I think that that's when the move may become official and Texas and OU may just bite the bullet and buy out their ends of the deal despite 
their statement about planning to honor their agreements. We'll see what happens. It's still an ongoing story. So The other thing that I was listening to a podcast yesterday, and they brought up a good point that even if they intend to stay until 2025, what happens if TCU gets cold feet and bolts for the Pac-12 and Kansas goes to the Pac, to the Big Ten and then the Big 12 just dissolves and then Oklahoma and Texas walk away scot-free? Well, I think essentially what may happen is, as I mentioned before, I think a lot of action will happen in the next year. I think you'll see teams maybe along the lines of TCU, Baylor, whoever, making formal announcements saying that they intend to leave the Big 12 at some point. Because from my understanding, I think the reason why you're starting to see a lot of the Texas OU stuff happen now is because they actually there is a there's a um, legislative process that has to take place a couple of years in advance, with, whether it's notifying the Big 12 this many days in advance that they're going to leave. And that's why I do think I kind of agree with kind of, I think, what the train of thought that you're going along the lines of in terms of, things happening very quickly over the next year, year mm-hmm. and a half. So it's going to be a very dynamic and ch- very exciting yet somewhat disappointing situation for the college football fans who do like the smaller schools. And like that's why even though I am a University of Texas at Austin fan and I can understand why the deal makes sense for UT, I can understand why it may not make as much sense for the sport and for the, the little guy in college football. And I definitely want to um, – shed light on that and really try and understand that perspective as well. The most amazing thing to me about all of this was we heard nothing. Apparently, Texas and Oklahoma and the SEC had been in talks for over six months before the news broke last Wednesday. And in this day and age of instant media and everybody's is on their phones and everybody's telling everybody everything all the time, I'm amazed at how they were able to keep this under wraps until until last week, basically the 11th hour. It really was quite amazing. I mean, the negotiations must have taken place amongst a very, very small circle of people in order to make sure that the news doesn't leak. And, you're, I mean, you're right. They've been talking for over six months now, and it's, it's quite amazing that they've been able to keep that kind of not in the public viewing for quite some time now. Can you imagine that if this news didn't get leaked... And yesterday, we're just we're going about our business. And then in the middle of the afternoon, we look at our phones at Texas, Oklahoma, we're leaving for the SEC, and it's already done and signed. Like- it's, it's amazing. <laughs> it's, but that's why I love sports in a way. It's just such a unique and exciting, dynamic thing that's constantly evolving. And that's one of the reasons why I'm really interested in sports law. I think it's a really interesting and exciting time to get involved with it. All right, so I think we're going to wrap this up. We've covered everything that we wanted to hit. We've covered the conference realignment and NIL and a couple of things that are going, going on in, in, in soccer. You are headed to Miami in a couple of weeks to start law school. Uh, if something significantly interesting happens between now and then, hope uh, we might do another show. I feel like there's going to be all kinds of stuff going on on a weekly basis. And so what I'm going to say is please come and see me in Miami. I know that I'm going to be busy studying for law school, but there are certain breaks that University of Miami has. For example, they have a fall break in October. So maybe in October you can come on down and we can record a mid-semester episode about something. You know, we'll see. Mm -hmm. So look forward to that. And uh, once again, thank you for listening to the Daytona Beach Sports Guys podcast. Uh, My guest is Mel. I'm Michael, and we will see you next time.